What if you had taken a day off? I wonder, giant moon in the sky, size of your heart. What if you had taken a day off? Read books in backyard jungles, enjoyed your coffee before it got cold. Good morning, good night. I miss you. Don't be sad. We fixed the roof and the staircase. We are weatherproof now, and the sempasuchil are bright, and your mango love is here, sweet as ever. Locust Radio. Welcome to Locust Radio, episode 14. I'm Tish, and we're joined this week by our new co-host, Laura Fair Schultz. Welcome, Laura. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. And our guest today is Crystal uh, Stella Bessaril and uh, Tish. Uh, before, before we introduce Stella, we have a few announcements. Uh, we're working on Locust Review 8 and Imago 2. Imago is, of course, our nonfiction theory annual. Uh, we aren't accepting any more submissions for Locust 8 because it's almost ready for the press. But submissions uh, are open for Imago 2. And you can always get in an early submission for Locust 9, and you can send those to us at locust.review at gmail.com. And uh, don't forget to subscribe to Locust Review. You can find out how on our website, locustreview.com, um, and our Patreon, patreon.com slash locustreview. Only subscribers and patrons get access to the second half of each episode of Locust Radio, so please subscribe. Our opening poem was What If You Had Taken a Day Off by Crystal Stella Besseril, which appeared in Locust Review 7. Stella worked with Locust Review editor Alex Billet and I for a number of years on the Red Wedge magazine project in the 2010s. I believe they were one of the founders of Red Wedge. She's a comrade, freelance writer, podcaster, and has worked as an organizer with the National Writers Union Freelance Solidarity Project. Her work, both nonfiction and poetry, has been published in many, 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 many places. And she's spoken sometimes on panels with myself and Alex at a number of historical materialism conferences in London, Toronto, and other places. And she lives in New York City. Welcome to Locust Radio, Stella. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Really excited to make it happen uh, after talking about this for some time. Uh, just really nice to be back in touch with comrades that I did really important work with uh, many moons ago. So thanks for having me. Yeah, we were supposed to record this uh, uh, like a month ago or so. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, we, uh, things happened to uh, various like parts of our anatomies that messed that up, back problems and stuff like that. So mm. it's really really great to have you how 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 is everyone doing just to ask like a human question um at the beginning mentally or physically mentally physically you know politically artistically cosmically Cosmic. whatever well i'm still here i know about you guys you're still here too i'm mm. not here <laughs> No, I think that's a good way to put it. Rung the fuck out, but happy to be amongst friends. 
Yes. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask about uh, uh, your poetry style because it occurred to me when we were getting ready for um, the show, you know, we worked on Red Wedge together with Alex, who's a producer of Locust Radio and also Omnia for a number. It was another producer now uh, coming on, coming on to help produce Locust Radio. And in the Red Wedge days, we, you know, it's something we've talked about here. We sometimes end up more focused on like you know, artistic theory um, than practice. But we published a lot of great art, poetry, and writing at Red Wedge over the years, including a lot of your poems, which have a lot of really great lines and images. You know, for example, from Good Bait, A Lesson in Political Economy of Desire, the line, a reminder to the Columbusing ass fuckboys and girls that they still hear. Or from a, um, the first poem, in a, a three poems we published, Most Things Die in Winter Here. I have a mouthful of crowns and empty houses, my gums, bloody shores, where ancestral trauma still washes up. And it occurred to me, like, in those years, I, I never actually, we never talked about, like, how you approached writing these poems, like, what your method was, your process, what inspired you to write them, and things like that. So I wanted to start with that um, as a question, if that's okay. Yeah, no, that that that's a great question. Um, and it's funny, I was working on a project yesterday with a new comrade, and they asked me a similar question about process and poetry. Um, and it like, sort of, I hadn't thought about it in a long time, mostly because I don't really consider myself a poet, which is really, I think, strange for a lot of people, including me, <laughs> like looking out in and being like, oh, why is that? Um, and I think it's because it came to poetry as a tool to make me a better writer, like in general, but specifically to get me out of a rut, out of like this period of stagnation in my 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 theoretical writing. You know, when I was working with you all at, at Red Wedge and we were, you know, um, developing papers for HM London, HM New York, HM Toronto. It was just always paper after paper, um, analysis after analysis. And I felt um, that the bulk of the writing that I had had and had been doing in my adult life was that sort of writing, was historical, was theoretical, was analysis. Um, and it felt quite stagnant to me. And um, and so I wanted to break out of that. And, and I was like, what's the hardest type of writing that I can recognize? And to me, that's poetry. I think poetry is incredibly difficult. Um, and that's not to say that it's inaccessible. I think anyone can do it, um, but it's it's hard. Just the same way with theory. I don't think theory is, is <laughs> easy, but I do think that everyone can and should engage in it, uh, whether it's producing it, reading it, challenging it, all of those things. And so um, I identified poetry as the hardest form of writing for me. And so I, I started to write poetry as a, very strategic um, skill development form of, of work. And I didn't really enjoy it. And I still struggle with it quite a bit. Um, now I don't produce as much poetry, um, but when I do, it's sort of like, it, it just happens. I don't plan on it where before it was, you know, it was very methodical, it was planned. I was doing this to develop myself as a writer um, and to also develop myself as a, as a, writer and thinker, not just, you know, someone who's producing language, but is doing so um, not just for a utilitarian purpose. And, and so now I, I don't produce as much poetry. I think actually the poem 
that I'm going to read, um, this first one is, that I submitted for, for Locust, um, is the first, it was the only poem that I wrote last year. Um, you know, in a whole year, just one poem that, that just, you know, very different from, uh, the years when I was producing a lot of poetry, a lot of it for Red Wedge. Um, and so, yeah, my process, I, I've been thinking a lot about it more recently. Um, I'm currently in the middle of producing a poetry zine, a poetry collection. Um, and I'm sort of like editing it and curating it and, and thinking about, about why I, why I did the, this poetry zine and why I still come to poetry, even though it's not my, uh, primary form of writing. Um, so yeah. So, um, the poem from Locus 7, which we opened the episode with, what if you had taken a day off, would, would you be willing to tell us, um, like what you were thinking when you wrote that? Yeah. So, um, I wrote this in September, um, and I hadn't really planned on, on writing it. <laughs> um, I was out, um, just enjoying a, a really nice, you know, early autumn afternoon. And, um, I was just thinking about labor and my labor, um, thinking about how atrophied our imagination of what our time can look like outside of laboring for survival under capitalism. Um, and thinking about my dad, um, and, and how he never had that luxury of really imagining leisure, um, in his life. And, um, and yeah, and so this, this poem is about my dad, um, and it's about labor and it's about lots of what ifs. Um, and I think what ifs are difficult for most people to, to sit with because, you know, because they're an, a different reality that could have been, um, and uh, in a lot of cases, maybe we wished um, had been. Um, so that's a little bit about what uh, inspired the poem. Did Can I just ask a question? Um, the stresses that working had on your dad, you said that he didn't, he wasn't able to imagine the kind of leisure that, that, you know, the promise of labor is supposed to, uh, it doesn't, of course, um, for most, most pe working people, um, those kinds of stresses, how did they, how did they show up? How did they impact you? Um, I think they gave me, they, they made me worry a lot. Obviously I think, children adult children worry about their aging parents i think that's natural um and then there's just um different elements that compound so like first generation tr children who have this sort of unspoken um uh, uh promise to fulfill right that like their parents sacrifices weren't in vain um which has always been a myth but i think has increasingly been uh impossible to achieve for for newer generations, so millennials, Gen Zers, um, opportunities that like even Gen Xers did have um, that newer that the newer generations don't. Um, and so I think worry is is the primary thing, but uh, also lots of grief even before he passed and he passed, um, you know, due to COVID last year, but lots of grief even before that, just seeing him uh, like not be able to rest, like even on a day off, like it was just so unnatural to him at that point uh, after laboring for, you know, he, he had been laboring since he was nine years old. Um, and at, at that point it, it, it was his natural state of being. 
even as unnatural as it is. Um, so yeah, I think for me, it was just this tension of, um, of almost feeling like <laughs> by me taking time off and me like being able to sort of challenge these narratives within me, like it was both subversive and important, but also incredibly difficult, you know? Um, so. Yeah, there's this sort of generalized anxiety that's enabled by capitalism, especially for working class people. You, Even if you take a day off to take care of yourself, it produces anxiety because what if you don't make enough money? What if you lose your health insurance because you're not a, you know, your boss gets mad? What if you don't do one of the many things you need to have, do to survive in this world the way it is? Like, so, like, even though, like, I'm on a little bit of a, I still wake up in the morning with this rush of anxiety. Like, what do I have to do today to make sure I don't fuck everything up? Because it's all on us as individuals. You know, you don't have, like, the sense of even, like, a safety net, like, around healthcare or, you know, um, um, things like that. And it makes it hard to to do a lot of things, human things with loved ones or to do things creatively, um, to step back and, and, and get a, a different sense of the world. And so that your poem really, really, um, hit that home for me. And it, I connected it in my mind with a poem that Tish wrote about giving up, um, that we published a few issues ago. Um, that I believe Tish wrote um, in response to working at um, a gas station near the convention center in uh, Las Vegas. And it has like a line along the lines of, you have to choose to give up every day. And I remember and it's something like, I gave up when the change was dropped, you know, while I was, somebody was buying a candy bar or something. And I had the anxiety, what if I wasn't there to sell candy bars to assholes, you know, um, what would that do to the progress we have made? You know, um, but of course it's not all problems. Right. Anyway, I didn't really have a question, but I, I thought that was really important. It's it's really important for work to be out there that's informed by the realities of people's lives in labor. Um, and, you know, we're just bombarded by so much media uh, that isn't that doesn't take into account the kinds of experiences that your father and, and other people have, you know, gone through, because it really does rob them of a, a, a great humanity that, that they're entitled to. They're entitled to. Um, yeah. Your, your poem already sort of resonated with me because of, you know, like losing my father and, and stuff and some thoughts I, you know, similarly had, um, but also like what, what you said when you were talking about it, like there was a, there was always a tension in my dad. And I think it's part of like what, what initially like radicalized me and, and led me to some of the ideas that I have now, which was, you know, my dad was always like really plagued with not being able to wake up any later than five or six o'clock in the morning because responsibilities and, and, you know, shit like that. But there was also like a, I mean, he also was on strike several times at factory jobs and stuff. So we knew that, you know, yeah, there's, there's like a, there's a tension 
that that lasts even even when we know better there's still like an internalized capitalism that really fucks us up every day yeah and it's it's simply because we have we all have to internalize some of it in order to survive right like uh i think consciously Mm -hmm. logically we we reject it but in practice like we have to go to the grocery store and pay six dollars for a half gallon of milk so there's this like cognitive like dissonance that we're like all moving in um and so it's just this constant tension that leaves people exhausted um and you know and and just really frustrated and that that line in your own poem about like just giving up and like literally the tiniest little thing being the trigger for it um and you know i i i think it's sort of like a cultural um trope at this point where it's like just the tiniest little thing can set you off and it's like that's that's where we're at like we are all literally just like on this precipice at all times um carrying this tension and the more aware of how absolutely antithetical to human humanity this system is the greater that tension is you know because you're, you're you're able to recognize the cognitive dissonance that you have to exist under yeah, there's that meme that goes around where this like, cartoon figure is carrying all this stuff like generational trauma, racism, inequality over time and all the crap. And they trip over something small. And it's like, oh, look, you can't handle this small thing. But it's really all this other stuff. And I want to sort of bring up some like, you know, of your political organizing, because I, I, I assume that this is related to what got you involved, Stella, in political organizing. I had read in one of the biographies around you online, and I didn't realize this, that you may started organizing around the Chicago teacher strike in 2012, if that's right. And of course, that was a huge deal and set the stage for some of the labor work going on now, like the teachers strikes, the mass teacher strikes in 2019. And also, you know, the organizing at Starbucks and the Amazon workers on Staten Island. I was wondering if you could talk about how you got involved with that. If that and if that was like, you know, your first big political organizing. Yeah, um, the the teacher strike of 2012 in Chicago, I think I identify now as the moment where I where I really came to cut my teeth as an organizer. And like that's where I really became an organizer um, before that. I, I I spent years and I guess nearly a decade, half a decade, trying to figure out where I fit politically, where I fit with what I could bring to organizing, what that even looked like. I had no idea. Um, uh, 2003, the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan is I think when I first like attended my my first protest. Um, Yes, my first protest that was like something's wrong and it's not small, it's structural. And I can't really like identify more than that. Um, I was in high school, I was a sophomore. Um, and so 2000, 2003 is when I started to recognize that something was wrong. Something, I, I think because, you know, growing up on the South side of Chicago as like a low income uh, person of color from a Mexican American or Mexican family, first generation, um, our neighborhood was like 95% percent 
same thing, <laughs> uh, low income Mexican immigrant families. And so it's like, if that's what you grow up with, you're like, well, this is normal. This is how everybody else is. Um, and then you, you know, meet other people whose circumstances are not like yours. And you're like, oh, wait. So like people have money, <laughs> people have access to things. There are resources. What are those? Um, and so I think in high school is when I started to meet people whose backgrounds and lived experiences were not like mine. And then meeting teachers who didn't come from my neighborhood uh, and, and who were like candid about sharing, you know, their own experiences. And some of them were political you know, had already been politicized and brought that into the classrooms. Um, and that started to, to open my eyes to, to recognizing things. And so, um, uh, yeah, in, in, in high school, uh, anti-war work is how I got involved um, in, with, with, with fellow classmates who were in, like equally um, enraged and feeling like, what the hell does this mean for us and for everyone. Um, but then I, after high school, I spent a number of years trying to learn wherever I could. Um, I moved to New York City after high school and um, the Brecht Forum was still around at the time. So I was at the Brecht Forum almost every night that they had programming. After work, I would just go down there and just like listen to people talk about everything from NAFTA to like, you know, some historical event about Vietnam or whatever. I mean, I was just consuming as much as I could. Um, and when I moved back to Chicago after a few years in New York, um, I sort of was very ungrounded and couldn't find a place politically. Um, so missed out on the, or just was as a spectator engaging with um, Occupy. Um, and I felt really immobilized like I wanted to participate but I didn't know how I didn't know anyone that was involved I I just ha I had no idea how to even approach it and so it was in 2012 where uh after the murder of Trayvon Martin that I started to just say you know I, I, I just have to go and I'll meet people and then I'll figure out how to get involved so I started going to those protests those first protests here um and that's how I found people who I eventually then ended up organizing uh around the Chicago teacher strike um, with. So that's just a little bit about my, the very like origin stories of organizing, but I've done a lot of organizing since then. Obviously like Chicago teacher strike was um, a pivotal moment for me to really figure out where my politics were or what they were, concretize them um, and sort of use that as a foundation to build upon all my others. So my anti-racist work felt more grounded because now I had a class analysis. Um, all sorts of other things now just felt a lot more um, grounded. And uh, and yeah, since then, you know, I've done like other general Black Lives Matter organizing. Uh, I was one of the founders of the Freelance Solidarity Project, which is now part of the National Writers Union. Um, I organized a rent strike in my building and it's not like we're not on rent strike anymore, but we were on rent strike for 17 months during the height of the pandemic. Uh, we're now going into settlements with the landlord. But by and large, we and other uh, organizations have, have written our rent strike off as a success. Um, and, you know, and just really plugging into to where it makes sense, given the circumstances and given my own capacities at this point. 
Oh, you mentioned uh, the National Writers Union. I, I actually wanted to ask you about, uh, could you uh, talk about some of your time spent organizing? Yeah, um, I came to the Freelance Solidarity Project in its early days. So I believe the like the first meetings were called in, man, time, time is so strange now. Um, summer of 2018, the first meetings for freelancers to figure out how to how to advocate for themselves um, given how few rights freelancers have. Um, New York is a media town um, and it's a freelance town. Lots of lots of people are exclusively employed through freelance work. Um, and I was looking for organizing work. I was working in the fashion industry as a freelancer, so not producing um, the traditional media, you know, like writing um, at that point. But I was still a freelancer and I uh, found a job as a freelance organizer, as a part-time freelance organizer to help freelance writers connect to other freelance writers and figure out how they can organize. And this is how I, I got in touch with um, the Freelance Solidarity, what came to be known as the Freelance Solidarity Project. At that point, it was just a group of freelance journalists um, and other writers who were like, the conditions of work are terrible and they're only getting worse. We hardly had any rights to begin with and now they're being eroded even more. Um, we need to figure something out because we're on our own. We can't, we can't, we don't have bar collective bargaining rights um, and that kills a lot of the momentum for organizing because we're like, we can't form a traditional union the way that other you know employees can. Um, so I connected with them in October through my part-time work organizing freelance writers in New York City and joined the, those efforts in October. Um, in June, I helped organize our, our first official summit where we made some concrete decisions and voted to formally af affiliate with the National Writers Union. Um, I, I ran and was elected to be one of the first co-chairs um, along with a wonderful writer and colleague, uh, comrade uh, of mine, Haley. Uh, so we, well, we were nominated to be co-chairs because we'd been leading a lot of the, of the communication work um, and a lot of the strategy work. And so we were nominated to, to run as co-chairs. We ran as co-chairs and uh, were voted uh, as co-chairs uh, of the first official Freelance Solidarity Project Organizing Committee in October 2019. Um, and I served on the organizing uh, committee as co-chair until April 2021. I had to step down due to other obligations. Um, but in that time where we formally affiliated with the National Writers Union uh, meant that we are now like dues paying members of the National Writers Union. We have like actual legal representation. We still do not have collective bargaining because of um, of labor laws that are antiquated and, uh, and 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 meant to keep freelancers from accessing these these rights, um, but the Freelance Solidarity Project is has actually just now um, last week won a major victory in New York State. So New York City in 2019 um, made us as you know municipal law that requires freelance employers to pay freelancers within 45 days of work completed. 
So in cases, in some cases, I wasn't getting paid for my freelance work uh, for six months, three months, you know, and I'm like, I got to, I can't tell my landlord, Hey, I'll pay you when I get paid in six months. Right. But there was nothing to protect me in 2019. There was a municipal law that was passed um, that made it so that employee uh, freelancers had the right to be paid within 45 days um, or employers would face fines. Um, that we were, we, the freelance solidarity project has spent the last three years trying to make that a state law. So not just a municipal law, but to protect freelancers across the state, um, hoping that this will then influence and help other states do the same thing, eventually, hopefully making it a federal sort of law. Um, and so, yeah, last week it was officially voted in Albany um, into law. And so it'll be enacted next year. Uh, it's the Freelance Isn't Free app. And, and yeah, it's really exciting. So that's one of our key victories um, that organizers and the current um, organizing committee have been fighting around for the last two years. That's awesome. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, it's really exciting work. We've also done a, a number of things working with um, uh, different outlets uh, to get better written contracts. So obviously they're not under obligation because we don't have collective bargaining rights, but we're asking um, media outlets to work with us in good faith to produce contracts that are fair for freelance writers and not just freelance writers. The Freelance Solidarity Project uh, is unique in that it also represents um, all types of freelance media workers. That includes illustrators, podcast producers, um, artists of all kinds, um, even social media content producers. Um, and that's, you know, very unique um, and it's opening doors for greater organizing across the media landscape in New York, but also elsewhere. We've got people who are part of the Freelance Solidarity Project who um, are based in Chicago, in the Bay Area, and that's growing. The, this membership across, um, across the country is growing. That's fantastic. That's really great. That reminds me, I want to ask our patrons and subscribers to get their friends and comrades subscribed so we can get to the point where we can compensate all our contributors. We did the math and we need y'all to help us double uh, our sub base. Um, what's, how, what do you see like a, a sort of critical mass Stella, like, like uh, in terms of like leverage against people underpaying or delaying payment, like to contribute, like, like how many folks need to get organized in order to uh, really force these people to pay people what they're worth? Um, a lot more. Uh, I don't think we have critical mass quite yet. Um, and I think it's, it comes down to, you know, fear. It's there, there's all employees operate through fear. I mean, we know this, right? Like our labor is coerced. Like we are literally forced to earn a living. We're not allowed to just live and survive because we're human beings that did not consciously make a decision to be brought to earth. Um, we don't have that right. And so everyone, everyone is forced to labor and sell their labor. Um, and it's, and it's already precarious and it's already scary for any type of worker to organize. That is even more so with freelance writers because they, they can just not ever get called back. Right. And even though there are like, you know, for example, the freelancers and free act in New York city had a clause that says that like, 
you know, it, it, it protects freelancers from retaliation if they bring a case against an employer um, for non-payment. Mm-hmm. There's no real way to prove like that this was retaliatory. You can just say, oh, we ran out of work or like we, you know, there was a person better suited for this for this uh, particular work. And that's who we went with. There's no there's no real way in. in and, and I think employers know that um, they know that also, for example, when I and don't quote no, I'm being quoted, but don't quote me on this. I believe the last time I checked the the freelances and free app in New York City um, in order because it was new there weren't there weren't enough resources to figure out how to help each freelancer get collect on the non-payment that they were bringing a case against and it's not necessarily a lawsuit just simply like um, I'm reporting that I haven't been paid uh, I need help in in, in getting paid Uh, and there weren't enough resources so Employers knew that too, that, that it was a, in a lot of cases sort of an empty threat that I would bring a case against you because they knew that if the city didn't have the resources to help me fight the case, that I would have to find my own like either legal team or other resources and that people don't have that. They don't have that. And so, you know, I, in a number of cases with a number of employers who were dragging on paying me, I brought this up and I cited the law and I sent them like the PDF and I'm like, look, this this is your responsibility to me uh, as a freelancer. And they just never even bothered to acknowledge it because they knew that there just weren't enough resources to help people if they needed it. And so uh, we need we need a whole lot more organizing happening and we need a lot more cross-industry uh collaborations and um and solidarity uh so it's really encouraging when we are able to mobilize to to support other people right and there's a lot of mobilization happening now we need a lot more and i mean it's it's all relative right like what we're seeing today with amazon and starbucks feels like incredible work and it is incredible work but it comes you know it, it feels this much bigger because we have been in this like dearth of of, of labor movement um, wins in decades, uh, we, but we need so much more, right? And so uh, we're not quite yet at a critical mass, but this this win uh, in New York State with the Freelancers and Free Act is huge. Um, more and more people are having to turn to freelance work, whether they like it or not. I know like a lot of people still think freelance work is this like glamorous thing where you're you're, you're, you know, you're your own boss and you make your own hours and it's like no it's really grueling and there's a lot of labor that you don't get paid for you don't get paid for the hours that you spend chasing a paycheck for work that you did four months ago and that's administrative work that you don't get compensated for right so there's a there's so much exploitation in freelance work um and media i mean the media landscape is just is is just in a really terrible position and i do not envy any of my writer media colleagues comrades um who are who are still in that in that industry and doing that work and fighting the good fight because it's 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 grim but people are organizing and i think we're going to see more of it and i think we're going to see more cross collaboration um between between industries if there are any freelancers listening, how, how would they get involved, get, help get organized? Yeah, um, I think we actually have a new website. Let me look it up. Um, 
before, which is the National Writers Union website, and then there was a link to um, like our own page. But let me look it up. While Stella's doing that, I think uh, we should probably uh, move on to the music break and then Stella read another poem, um, if that sounds good to everybody. I believe, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we'll be playing Omnia Soul's iCloud fucking sucks song. Wages for housework and other necessary labor. This face that cannot imagine the sweetness of reciprocity begs for release, the white linen of unpaid labor surrendering on a windy day. You know, between between that poem and the and the end of the one that I think we had in the uh, uh, notes that you were um, going to read, but decided to to read that one instead. Um, I'm really surprised that you say that you're not a poet because, because <laughs> goddamn, you are a really fucking good poet. Like, uh, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that. It's, it's lovely. There's a cleanness to your, to your poetry succinctness. Yeah, I think, um, well, thank you. First of all, uh, thank you. Um, I've, I've increasingly, my, my poems have increasingly become shorter. Um, and I think that's a, that's an element that I carry with me, like an, uh, an aesthetic artistic 
element that I carry from my days in photography. So I went to school for photography and I remember one of my professors um, said that when taking a photo, I would my, my class at the Fashion Institute um, here in New York City, we were the last class to be 100% analog. So that's why I don't know how to operate a digital camera, <laughs> even though I went to photography school, um, because we we still you know developed our own film and printed our own prints. Um, and they, even though you know digital cameras were around, uh, they 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 carry they instilled in us the principle of um, when taking a photograph. Sure, you can edit, right? You know, there's there, there's there's editing in the dark room um, that happens. But that only the things that add to the image should be in the frame, and so uh, very early on that was instilled in me by this professor. And I don't, I, I, I still think about it all of the time with my writing, whether it's poetry, whether it's theory, uh, whether it's a text. Like if it's not adding to it, it's detracting from it. And so I found that as I've developed my writing, uh, it's gotten a lot more succinct. Um, as, a, as, as a speaker, I'm very verbose. I like language. Um, but in my writing, I, I have become a lot more succinct um, because of that principle that I, that I still carry with me, uh, in most cases deliberately, but in, in other times, it's just innate now in me. It's interesting how um, in our relationship with words, there, there's this this difference between speaking, you know, and, and how we speak and how we write. Uh, I, I've noticed that with students. I've noticed that with other artists. Um, that there's just this different, I don't know, process, or maybe it comes from a, a similar place, but just, um, I don't know, a, a different a, a, a different way of using words as, as a medium, as a media. So, uh how to how to craft them and how to put them together and i i agree with you what doesn't detract sorry what doesn't add definitely tends to detract and and that's that's a skill i think that um at some point everyone has to has to kind of uh, work through especially in my own work i put a lot of stuff in and then i edit it out um i sort of dump <laughs> and then refine. Um, is that something that you do or does it come up fairly succinct with you when you're writing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, now it's a lot more succinct. Now it just sort of, I fine tune. Um, and I think that's one of the really great skills that I got to develop um, in my time, you know, with Red Wedge and then in other, in other work uh, with Red Wedge. Um, was of being an editor and a writer, right? So a lot of times, a lot of, a lot of creatives are, they produce and they produce amazing work, but it's really the editor that comes in and like makes it, uh, makes it as clear as it can be, uh, you know, like highlights what needs to be highlighted. Um, and editing is an art. And I, I think I really took it seriously during my time at Red Wedge, um, and, you know, pairing that experience on the editorial board with my experience in, you know, photography uh, and, and really wanting to deliver whatever the message needed to be uh, as clearly and succinctly as possible uh, has translated to now my brain is better equipped to go straight to that. So it's not it's less 
imagery dumping. It's less um, words on the page now. Um, and I, yeah, I, 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 it took me a while to realize that because I, I haven't been writing as much poetry um, in the last few years. But I noticed that when I wrote this poem, that uh, I think this was one of the first that was like super short, very succinct. Um, and then, you know, also, what if I, what if you had taken a day off? That poem sort of just came off the page this way. And I just fine tuned some, um, so, so, some bits and pieces here and there. Um, and then the, the poem that I'll read later, similarly. Um, and I think that's why looking at my older poems and what, why I chose these for this, these readings, um, my older poems reflect that like early stages of, of my poetry writing where um, I hadn't quite figured out how to apply the principle of if it doesn't add its attracts to my writing um, because I'd come up with these lines or these images and I'm like I, li I like this like this makes this poem feel good but then it was a longer poem than maybe I had intended or really was necessary to get the feeling across. Um, and so my poems are now a lot shorter for sure these days. That's really interesting how um, you develop uh, as a poet. I, I, you said that you don't think of yourself as a poet, but I think as soon as you start thinking about the changes in your work over time, that it makes you a poet. And, and um, of course there's, there are different styles. Like some people, you know, their work is to flood the, the poem or the piece of artwork with, with a lot of imagery or a lot of uh, words. And that's just their particular style, but, but that's something that each individual has to find, has to find out, you know, where, where do you edit? Um, that's, where, when do you stop painting or when do you stop writing? Um, that's, that, that tends to make you, uh, over time, an artist or, or a poet, uh, how, how you change and how you develop. I also had another question. Um, there was this uh, really interesting um, uh, part of the discussion where we were talking about triggers. Uh, you were talking about your father and the, the things that triggered him. You're talking about yourself. And I think that that's something that a lot of comrades can, can relate to because we live in a very traumatic world. And trauma, uh, of course, works on a very unconscious level. And um, of course, poetry can come from a very unconscious level as well. Uh, and memory as well. So I'm interested uh, if you have any thoughts about um, your unconscious mind, the unconscious mind of poets, triggers, the way that triggers um, relate to trauma, the way that they relate to words, the way that they relate to ideas just spilling out. Do you sometimes write and not know where it came from? Does that ever happen to you? Um, those are all really great questions. Um, I, you know, I don't. I don't write like that. Journaling has always been something I struggled with and I only have um, made it a more intentional practice that has been really difficult. But now it's like anything, like once it becomes a habit, it's a lot easier to do it. Um, but I've, I think, I think a lot of people um, and I fall under this category restraint is almost the easier route. Like 
we just we haven't really been giving given uh, tools for self-expression, whether it's through creative means or simply communication. Right. Uh, it's really hard for, for most people to say, you know, when something's bothering them um, and then like to move that into an artistic space. In some cases, it's easier. In some cases, it's harder. Um, but I think we are collectively as a society starting to do very important, long um, overdue work to destigmatize, uh, you know, mental health um, issues and and not even issues, just like the reality of grappling with like compounded trauma uh, that is living under capitalism, right? And so I think this is, we're in the beginning stages of this um, reconfiguration of how we relate to each other, how we relate to art um, and centering self-expression as like a core, like human need. Um, and I think the next stages will be to move from the individual individualized um, aspect of mental health into the structural uh, reasons for much of what most people carry and struggle with. Um, and for me, I sort of came to writing as a very utilitarian thing to write about theory, to write about history, to understand it, to help others understand it, to bring more questions than answers so that others can percolate on them. And, 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 and so I can as well. Um, so, and this is, you know, again, the, the reason why I came to poetry in the first place, because I felt stagnant in my thinking, in my writing and, um, and growth can only happen outside of our comfort zones. And that's the same with, with my writing. I came to poetry to challenge myself as something that I didn't enjoy doing. Um, journaling also something that I, I always saw as really a, a great way of releasing, but just, and could admire, you know, through reading others' journals, like, uh, but never could do it myself because it requires a level of vulnerability that I don't think most people can access because we don't, we don't have the tools. We don't have the um, support necessary to be as vulnerable as we can be to be able to understand what our triggers are trying to tell us um, because they're just information telling us where, where there's things to heal, where there is uh, things to address we don't have typically as individuals, let alone as communities and society, the tools and the resources and the support necessary to handle those triggers. So we internalize them as character flaws or we um, soothe the pain in any number of ways. Um, and, you know, I think triggers are um, our information uh, and we're only now sort of scratching the surface as a society, as people who are not part of like the mental health apparatus, um, you know, whether it's clinical workers or, or whatnot, um, starting to see it as as something that's uh, that's normal part of living, but especially 
normal under the circumstances under which we're living currently. I agree with kind of what I think you're saying there about like poetry. I, I have, I have a similar thing with journaling. I can't be that vulnerable, that Frank in such clear words, but with poetry, there's, there's still a vulnerability. There's still a processing of emotion, which I think is really important. I also think poetry is just like one of the original human tools of expression and, and processing. So of course it's an easy thing to run to because you can, you can say how you're feeling, but in a way that isn't immediately apparent, that doesn't put you or soul so immediately on the page for people. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. I, w- I read something a few weeks back about how poetry is just as much about what you don't say as as what you do, right? Um, and I think the reason why people are so intimidated by poetry, and again, I include myself in that category of people who are intimidated by poetry, is because it it does require a level of vulnerability that we're not used to, both to write it and in, and as well to engage it. Um, and, and it almost seems like a very private thing. I recently did a book club around a book, a, a collection of poetry and reading it with other people, like you could see, you could feel the discomfort in the room um, because because we're not used to this this type of vulnerability. Um, and but but it's also all in the same vein. Like the the flip side of it is that it is easier to be vulnerable in a poem than it is. Dear diary, today this and this happened, right? Because there's a there's a, a removal, a, a distance. Um, that allows for that sort of vulnerability to exist without feeling like absolutely exposed. I guess it's, well, it's, it's, I guess this is related to like, you know, the whole idea of politicizing mental health, the, which Mark Fisher talked about. I, I went back to therapy and it didn't really go anywhere really because I was talking to my therapist. I'm like, I'm depressed because 6 million people died for no really good reason. I'm anxious because my boss doesn't seem to care if I get sick. And my therapist's like, well, that's rational and healthy, but I feel this sadness and fear that can't really be overcome by anything that I can do personally, you know, um, as an individual, these are all like structural, political, collective things. Um, But I think definitely our as a relationship to be able to reflect that stuff back in a, in a critical um, way that also cuts against like the sort of structural gaslighting around these 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 matters. Like we're supposed to pretend things are normal, um, even though like the pandemic numbers are high. You know, we're supposed to move on from these crises because we have to defend quote unquote democracy or whatever in Ukraine and, and all this stuff. I have a couple questions. I was wondering, still, do you enjoy writing poetry now? That was one of the questions. Has it shifted for you? And I also wanted to ask you what you think about the the relationship between your different poems, because um, there's like the relationship between them as well as the poetics within each one. So like there's distinct images or flash fictions, vignettes, concepts, and then how they are part of a whole thing together. Your 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 overall um, poetic work and how those reflect your worldview, parts of your worldview, politics, artistic, and personal orientation stuff like that yeah i mean i think i don't know 
I don't know that I enjoy writing poetry. <laughs> I actually don't think I enjoy writing. I just do it because I think I have to do it, um, whether it's for my sake or for, um, or because I think, you know, I don't know, it could help someone or whatever. Uh, and 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 I one of the things that I like have consciously been trying to, um, I don't know if the word figure out is the right one, but understand how it operates within me is uh, the util like I'm very utilitarian. It, it, I organize a lot of the stuff that I do is like this will help this, this will contribute to that, um, and an art can be that but it also needs to be its own thing um and like holding both of those seemingly opposing i don't think they are actually opposing or diametrically opposed to each other but um i think in the last half century we have not had enough as a left to say about how they coexist how art and politics coexist without becoming um didactic or utilitarian um it, you know in in that sense um and art being its own thing um because self-expression is a key aspect of being human um so i don't really enjoy writing poetry like don't look at my writing as a thing of pleasure um it's also not a painful thing i mean sometimes it is when I was writing college papers, it was painful because ADHD brains don't like, don't like working on other people's terms. <laughs> but um, so it's not a painful thing. I'm not a masochist that way, but I don't, it's not a pleasurable act. I do it when it, when it feels necessary. Um, and my politics have definitely evolved since my first sort of like poems for Red Wedge. Um, and it, it, it's, it's funny because on the, surface, on the surface, my politics have not changed, like still the same on the major things, but there's so much more, there, I have such a greater ability for nuance now that I didn't um, five years ago, seven years ago, eight years ago, 10 years ago. And so um, I feel like I, I can say less now because i'm not trying to say all of it to mm -hmm. to ease my own anxiety or ease others anxieties about what my position is or what it's not um because there comes a i have a level of trust in my own politics now that i didn't then and so um i'm okay with being wrong i actually don't take positions where i'm like i'm absolutely correct and i'm like un this is an unchangeable position for me um, I'm a lot more fluid and I'm a lot more able to sit with discomfort and hold multiple things that like that are uncomfortable to hold and and exist in that space of um, of uncertainty and uh, non um, definite and I think that's also why my poetry has changed significantly and why I wanted to read wages for housework instead of um, most things die in the winter because I think there's a very big difference. And I think Tish mentioned like there's a difference in the poems and I think it, it comes with that sort of uh, sort of the marriage of, of, of mental health um, and growing through 
mental health challenges um, and politics and, and like really making them be in conversation with each other. Um, and, and so my writings has reflected that inadvertently. Like I didn't mean to like change the way that I wrote poems and looking at them now, like I went back and read some of those from a few years ago and I was like, wow, like this is not how my brain even thinks about poetry anymore. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it's been a surprise for me as well. <laughs> Uh, I wanted to uh, come back to this idea of poetry and, and there's this idea of the, the individual and then there's, of course, the collective of people who are reading it and getting something from it. Um, I've been reading a, a book lately, um, Capitalism in the Camera, and it's, it's all a, a series of essays about how capitalism it has been able to co-opt the art form of photography for its own uses and and rage ahead into this whole neoliberal catastrophe and uh, that's harder to do with poetry uh, poetry I mean it can be very didactic it can be um, uh, ideological it can be forced but uh, obviously the poetry that, that really speaks to people, at least I hope so, does come from this place uh, where there is a fluidity, uh, a dialectic between things that are hard to hold uh, together, but you do hold them in conjunction with each other. And it's interesting. Um, I, I think poetry isn't, isn't as co-optable as photography has been, not say, not putting down photography, but um, obviously photography can be used in, in other ways other than to support capitalism. But um, it's it's just interesting. You, you don't see poetry in, in um, advertisements in Vogue the same way, or Cosmopolitan the same way you do photography. So there is this intimacy there, this, this vulnerability that you talked about um, uh, that you're dealing with. And uh, it's, it's, it's far more human that way. And I think that that's what capitalism has a problem with humanity, like the actual sum of what comes out of a person uh, when they're creating art. At least, at least I hope that that continues to be a problem for capitalism. Yeah. I totally agree. Um, and it's, uh, I'm glad that you bring this up because I think that there have been attempts, um, I'm sure for many, many years, decades, but rec more recently that I can point to as examples of capitalism trying to co-opt poetry and failing, um, and that being sort of like very comforting <laughs> um, to know that like it is um, it 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 can't be in some ways because it requires a sort of vulnerability that capitalism is incapable of, and and so we we reject it like it it is instinctually rejected by our, like, our humanity um, to see it. I, I, I think it was last year that Google, Google had like this whole ad series on the subways here in New York um, where they were using AI to write these poems and then Grubhub jump, jumped on the like bandwagon. So it was like Google and Grubhub had all these like poem ads and they were just like icky and like you could tell that no one was into them and it was just like mm, hard pass like not even you didn't even have to be a lefty you didn't have to 
be anything. I just think like everyone was like this. No, just no. Um, and more recently, you know, two weeks ago with the Uvalde um, school mass shooting, uh, the poet who read a poem at Biden's inauguration uh, wrote a poem about the shooting and they did they did come under some fire on social media because it just didn't feel right um and a lot of people couldn't really put into words what it was and i don't think anyone accused you know the poet of being like a capitalist or you know whatever but it just i think artists are forced into the sort of um, self-promotion that yeah you need to make money and survive um, as you know because poetry is work work writers are workers poets are workers musicians are workers um, and so there is sort of a level of blurring that happens and sometimes it's like it's not until you cross the line that you're like oh that was a, that was a line um and so i don't think it was like a malicious thing or them capitalizing on a tragedy um i think that they were trying to contribute something to the moment to collective moment of grief um but it didn't feel right and again this is like the fact that we can't even really put it into word beyond it just didn't feel right um speaks to how poetry is like cap is is able to evade uh capitalism because it is one like Tish said one of the oldest forms of human expression um and so like it hasn't it hasn't been capitalism hasn't figured out how to reproduce how to co-opt it like reproducible art that is more newer to the human experience like photography like recorded music you know um so yeah That reminds me that the last time uh, that I, okay, the, I should preface this by saying this is what I know of. The last time a poem was like, quote unquote, absorbed or became like went viral or became a thing. It was a poem uh, by, what was the guy's name? Wynn Cooper. And that became uh, the song All I Want to Do by Cheryl Crow. It was a poem called Fun which is actually a pretty decent poem about a guy in a bar talking to another guy in a bar, just this sort of casual conversation of two people who are like drunk at like early afternoon on a Tuesday. Good poem became all I want to do is have some fun by, by Cheryl Crow. So it couldn't even fucking do that. Right. So yeah, it's never gonna, it's never going to take poetry because that's what it's going to give us every time it tries. Yeah. There's something hollow in the way it rings yeah there's i think a reason why like social media isn't made of poetry even though poetry is really easy and cheap to produce um as easy as an instagram photograph and of course poets don't make money even the successful ones famously so but the social media economy doesn't seem to dovetail with poetry at all but there are photographs everywhere Although to be not the poetic photographs, though, either, right? So the Internet's not full of Robert Frank images or Man Ray images or Dorothy Lang 
or even like Cindy Sherman. But I don't think that means that poetry is inherently like anti-capitalist either or anti-racist. This is related to the controversy Stella brought up. There was the Kenneth Goldsmith controversy a few years ago where the, he's the poet in residence or the whatever at the Museum of Modern Art where he remixed, quote unquote, the Mike Brown autopsy report from Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and it got the similar sort of response as um, the kind of situation Stella's talking about, but even more so, or that Dana Schultz painting of Emmett Till, um, which sort of just repackages trauma without any criticality to it, right? Um, which is, of course, particularly problematic when it's someone else's trauma um, and things like that. But generally speaking, there's something about the poetic form that doesn't translate well um, to the attention economy, probably because the poem stops you, right? It Poetry stops you, uh, especially if there's a good volta in it, right? It says you got to stop for a moment and think about what you just read, whereas you're not supposed to stop in the attention economy. You're supposed to keep going, trying to, like, fulfill, like, your, you know, uh, your rush for like, you know, dopamine and, and everything else. And poetry just stops. There's it's hard to consume a poem. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. I mean, even as someone who writes poems, uh, who loves reading poems, um, I will be on Twitter and come up on a poem. And if it's too long, my brain's like, there's more dopamine ahead, just keep scrolling. Like, it's really hard. Like I, you have to be very intentional about it. You can't just consume it like a photograph or audio. Uh, and again, this isn't to like say that it's a superior art form. It's just a different art form. And this is the reason why it's harder to co-opt it. And it, and it's neutral in that it, it doesn't make it anti-capitalist automatically because it's harder to co-opt. Um, there are plenty of racist, misogynistic, transphobic poets out there, um, 100%, right? Because it, it, it's not neutral in that way. It's simply, it's simply just incompatible with the ways that capitalism knows how to co-opt other forms of human expression um, or mediums for human expression. And... And yeah, hard, poetry is just really hard to, it's really hard to produce. It's really hard to engage. People struggle to, to, to know what to do with it, right? Uh, outside of like a, 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 a poetry assignment for school, most people never write poetry because it's very difficult, not because of any sort of skill or technique that's necessary, but what it asks of us to read it, to engage it, to write it. Um, is something that is is foreign in many ways because we're not we're not taught to value our humanity for the sake of humanity only for the sake of production and for the sake of value creation um, and so we just don't know what to do with it you know I think identifying what it is about poetry that makes it not fit into the logic of capitalism very well. And then bringing that aspect of it into other art forms is really important. It's sort of like whatever you think of Mark Rothko, right? The, the field painter. There's a reason why you don't see advertisements anywhere using a Mark Rothko painting, right? Because for a Mark Rothko painting to work, you actually have to sit in front of it for like 20 minutes to actually 
get anything out of it other than, oh, look, some blue and orange or, or, or whatever. It's by its very nature, it's doesn't fit well um, with a communicative capitalist system. I believe our next our next musical break is another uh, work by Omnia Soul, Juicy Slice, uh, which is one of my favorites from the Sunshine Tapes, uh, which remixes in part a Wendy's training commercial that was uh, viral for a while about giving people juicy slices of things at Wendy's in the 1980s. If you want to listen to the second half, be sure to become a patron or subscriber. You can do that at locustreview.com.
Thank you for listening to part one of Locust Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locust Radio, go to patreon.com slash locustreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locust Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell and Laura Fair Schultz. It's produced by Omnia Soul and Alexander Billet with music by Omnia Soul.